0: He said, I'm going to tell you something, boy. He said, if the color line had been broken in that time, your daddy would have been in the major leagues.
1: Welcome to another episode of Conversations. This is your host, Dr. Adam Rosh Today we're having a conversation, but just not any conversation. It's a conversation with someone who can shed incredible insight, history, and experience with a topic that nearly everyone around the world is focused upon right now, and that's policing. Dr. Isaiah McKinnon, known by his friends as Ike, is a former police chief of Detroit, Michigan. He began as a patrolman in 1965, He was one of the first African-Americans hired by the Detroit Police Department where many precincts were still segregated. And he was in his 20s and had just returned from Vietnam, where he served as a machinist in the United States Air Force. Now, he patrolled the city of Detroit during the rebellion of 1967, where he feared for his life, but not from the people on the streets, rather from some of his brothers in blue. He rose through the ranks from sergeant to lieutenant to inspector, you know, fighting crime in a majority black city while enduring the sting of racism and discrimination, even within his own department. As a sergeant and lieutenant, he worked to expose and rein in the violent behavior of some of the law officers he supervised, only to be told by his supervisors to let it go. In 1994 he became chief of police for the city of Detroit. This was an incredible moment. Here was a man whose family fled the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama in the 1950s and came to Detroit for a better life, where as a teenager, he was mercilessly beaten by brutal white police officers in a department he was now in charge of. Chief McKinnon, Had his work cut out for him, however, not only did he have to contend with a city known as the murder capital of the world, he had to dramatically reform the Detroit Police Department by dealing with a legacy of systemic racism and discrimination inside the DPD and moving toward community policing and ending excessive use of force. He had to rebuild trust between the police and the community they were sworn to protect. What is just as amazing is along the way, he earned his college degree, a master's degree in criminal justice, and a PhD in administration and higher education. It was all part of his belief that the more you know about people and the world they live in, the better you can understand and serve them. After retiring as chief of police, Dr. McKinnon went on to become the deputy mayor of Detroit from 2014 to 2016, and he became a tenured professor at the University of Detroit Mercy, where after more than two decades of teaching, he retired in 2018. Now, this conversation was recorded one week after a video showed Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin kneeling on the neck of George Floyd until he died and people erupted in protest against police violence around the country and the world. What Chief McKinnon says about this event is chilling. Even as a police officer, he said, even if he was in his uniform as a black man in America, he said, it could have been me. In this conversation, Ike shares his experience of being a black cop in an organization and a system that for decades has engaged in brutal, violent, and too often deadly treatment of black people, including himself. He offers insight from inside the police department and takes us on a journey from segregated Alabama to the streets of Detroit, where as a teenager, He was beaten by a group of white police officers known as the Big Four, to what it was like to patrol a city during a major uprising, to what he did to reform the police department as chief, and what he would do now to make change possible. This conversation was such an incredible privilege and one that was much needed to be conducted. And to top things off, Professor Danielle McGuire returns for this conversation. You may remember Danielle from the conversation with Attorney Angela Povolitis in Episode 6. So without further ado, here is Professor Danielle McGuire and Dr. Isaiah Ike McKinnon in an incredibly emotional, powerful, and inspirational conversation
2: Well, it's so good to be with you this morning, Dr. Isaiah McKinnon.
0: Thank you. It's good to be here.
2: Thanks for joining me in this conversation. I I really honestly can't imagine talking to anyone else this morning who has gosh, more experience, more insight, more knowledge and know-how about the crisis our country is facing right now than you
0: well thank you thank you, I, you know, it's really interesting for me to have lived through a great number of things in my life to, to have seen other things with people and to be able to talk about it at this time because uh, as we know I mean this is a very turbulent time but I've always said that about other things that occurred <laughs> throughout my life too you know and, and wonder if in fact things will get better, they get worse. And, but there's always that, uh, that there's a, what's it, this, the song, uh, from Monty Python, always look on the bright side of life. Right. <laughs> and I try and do that.
2: Yeah. You seem to have uh, done that your whole life. And, and, and I, I'm so excited to talk about it today because it really is. I mean, I've studied a lot of people in history and, um, and you're definitely one of the most fascinating and, mm-hmm. um, most interesting. And I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to meet in the last few years and, and that we've been able to work together. Um, Thank you so much. And, and I'll just say for the people who are listening, um, Dr. McKinnon and I met uh, in our, our related work related to the um, commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the 1967 Detroit uprising. Uh, we were on a number of panels together, and we just maintained our conversation over these past years, sharing a lot of um, similar interests in race and interracial history and... Um, Policing, And he's been a great help to me in writing my current book on the Algiers Motel incident, which we'll maybe touch on in this conversation. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's been incredible. But I wanted to start by asking you about um, your parents. And I like I said, I just reread your autobiography. It's called Stand Tall, which I urge everyone to try to get a copy of. Um, and there's a story in there about your father being a catcher. (laughs) And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your father and a little bit about that story.
0: Oh, most certainly. My, My father was born in 1900 in Union Springs, Alabama. Wow. And my dad would always talk about, not necessarily growing up, but also about his life and some of the things that happened with him And one of those stories that he would tell me was that he played baseball in the old Negro League. And, of course, as this young boy growing up, you know, you want to believe some of the things that your dad tells you, but not all the things because I had never seen him play ball. And my dad played (laughs) in, in Montgomery and in Birmingham. And he talked about being a catcher. And then, I mean, what really tipped this off for me was he talked about being a catcher for Satchel Paige the great legendary Leroy Satchel Page, who's known to be the greatest baseball pitcher ever. And so my dad, he was, I'm gonna do my impression of my dad. He would say, boy, you know, I'm gonna tell you something. He said, uh, that 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 boy Satchel Paige, he said that it was hard catching him because the gloves that we had weren't really tough like the gloves now. He said, my hands would hurt, you know, and my dad had these big, tough hands. I mean, there's like callus all over. And so he said that uh, this, Satchel, he said he could throw that ball. He said he could move it anywhere he wanted to. And so I'm sorry, I'm believing this. I'm loving this. And he said, not only him, but he said there was this other boy, uh, Booker T. Brunyon, who could throw harder than Satchel. And he was a better pitcher than Satchel Pace. But I'd never heard of Booker T. Brunyon. Anyway. So in 1967, I'm a young police officer and the Harlem Globetrotters came to Detroit and they played at a place called the Olympia Stadium. And their guest and intermission, halftime, was none other than Leroy Satchel Page. And so I was a police officer, I'm in uniform. I was assigned to that detail. And I said, I'm going to go and ask him. So I, I went over to Mr. Page and I said, excuse me, Mr. Page. I said, Can I ask you a question? He said, "Son, you can ask me anything, but don't ask me about my mama." You know. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I wanted to start laughing. But I said, "Sir," I said, "Listen, did you ever play ball with a guy in Alabama by the name of McKinnon?" And Satchel Page, he kind of wiped his head. He said, "Hmm, mm, son," he said, and he thought about it. He said, "Son, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so." He said, "The name doesn't doesn't ring a bell to me," <laughs> and. And I said, "Oh, okay, Mr. Page. Thank you so much." And I turned to walk away. And on my mind at that time was, I was going to go back and tell my dad that you, you've been lying to me all this time. <laughs> <laughs> and as as I started walking away, Satchel Page he said, "Son, son, son, just a minute, just a minute." And I stopped, and he said, um, "McKinnon, McKinnon, McKinnon." He said, "Coda McKinnon." That's that was my dad's name.
3: Yeah.
0: I said, "Yes." He said he was, a, and the term he used was hind catcher which was an old country term for catcher. He said, I said, yeah, yeah. He said, oh, boy, I'm going to tell you something. He said, your daddy had these huge arms, these big hands. He said, that man could play some, bas- some baseball. He said, he was one of the best catchers I've ever seen in my life. He said, I'm going to tell you something, boy. He said, if the color line had been broken at that time, your daddy would have been in the major leagues. Of course, I almost jumped off the floor because wow. he was reaffirming what my father had said to me all this time. And Satchel Page went on to tell me, he said, no, your daddy probably didn't want to travel like the rest of us because he wanted to family. And he, he talked about the, those guys barnstorming, and that's what they did. And they didn't make any money doing that. He said, But your daddy wanted to stay home and take care of his family. I was so proud of this. So I remember I went home and I said, Well, Pop, Guess who I met today? He said, who oh, my father had this way of expressing himself? He would kind of go back and he'd lean forward. He said, who, who'd you meet? I said, well, Dad, I met Satchel Page. <laughs> and he said, uh huh. I said, <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, Dad, I said, uh, you know, he, he, he talked. I said, and he said, what did he tell you, son? I said, Daddy. He told you. You told me you were one of the best catchers, best baseball players he ever seen. I said, He said that if the color line had been broken, you would have been in the major leagues. And my father said, See, <laughs> I told you that, but you didn't want to believe me. That's and and that, that's that's really a true story in terms yeah. of my father. But he, my father, had taught me how to pitch. He taught me how to catch. But again, you, you this is a, a man who was at that time probably in his. We had to be in the '60s. Wow! You know, which you don't, you don't believe. But those are things that happened, and to think that my dad could have been up there with uh, Jackie Robinson and Babe Ruth. In fact, my dad talked about the fact that he had played against Babe Ruth and those guys. Wow. You know, when they were born, barnstorm. So that that that's a story that always stands out about me and my my father.
3: Yeah,
2: opportunities <clears throat> lost or given up and denied.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And ironically, I went back to Alabama, I think, in 1989 to talk to some relatives because I wanted to get more information. And one of my relatives that I had never met before, uh, I uh, got a name from I don't remember where, and I went to his home. And he told me these stories about him and my father. And uh, and of course, in the country, as they would say, they, they had no baseballs. And so they were, this, this man, his name was um, Braswell. He said, son, let me tell you. And It was really interesting how they all started off with something like that, you know. Yeah. Son, let me tell you. He said, no, we we didn't have no baseballs, so we had to make our own baseballs. He said, what we would do is we would skin a squirrel. What? Yes, yes. He said, we would skin a squirrel, and we would get some uh, rubber bands, and we roll them all up in a, in a, a ball, and we would... Uh, would take a needle and sew the squirrel hide on to make a baseball. Wow. He said that's how we played ball and none of us had shoes he would say <laughs> he said but it was their way of life because they did not have the ability or and certainly location to play in the 19 teens if it was at that time.
2: right. So. Wow, that's country
0: ball. That's country ball yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so so you were born in Alabama.
0: Born in Montgomery, Alabama.
2: Montgomery, Alabama.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, my dad moved the family to Chicago when I was a month old.
2: Wow, you were so little.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, there's a reason that he moved the family because my father worked for a company called the Southern Canoa Company. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And he, um, the, the other colored workers, as they were called at the time, uh, they they asked my dad to represent them and go in and talk to the boss about getting the colored workers a pay raise. Oh. And um, my dad had the audacity to go to this uh, white man and ask for a pay raise for the colored workers. And this man was incensed that uh, this colored man would come to him and ask for a pay raise for the uh, other people. And he told my father to get out of his office and he immediately told my father he was on the midnight shift. Now, the, the, the uh, midnight shift, they, they had to put coal into these huge furnaces mm. by yourself.
3: Mm.
0: And this was his punishment. And, of course, my dad went home, came back on midnight. And he t- story that that it's, it's scary, it's eerie, but it's also a learning experience he said that uh, he was on the shift and he's putting this coals into these big furnaces. And at some point, probably around one 30, two o'clock, he said, he heard these men yelling, they were going to kill him.
3: Mm.
0: And they killed him, killed him by name. And uh, he said, he could see these men dressed in their KKK robes. And my father, he said, son, let me tell you something. <laughs> he said, mm-hmm. We have always been fast runners, McKinnon said. He said, but I realized how fast I was at the time. My father ran home, which was probably about three or four miles from this plant, and told my mother uh, we had to leave. My father went to the Greyhound bus station and took a bus to Chicago.
2: That night. He then,
0: that wow. night. That night. Then he then he sent for the family. I was a month old at the time.
3: Wow.
2: And
0: it, it saved him and saved us you know? and yeah. because who knows what would have happened
2: right exactly and that's yeah that's the sad reality for so many people yeah. one question to the white man, to the boss and yeah. suddenly your life is at risk
0: that, absolutely but it, it was a, uh, it was a point in life for him and for all of us yeah. because he got to see a different part of life that he hadn't seen before.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so, so you guys moved to Chicago. Do you remember growing up in Chicago? No, no, no. no.
0: I was a little boy and I think I was four or five when we went back to Montgomery. Okay. And I was in uh, Montgomery until I was nine years old. Okay. So I started school there. Uh, And uh, when I was nine, the family then moved to Detroit for uh, better jobs because of the automobile industry right so
2: that would have and, been around 1953 54. 53 yes okay yes
0: yes
3: Wow.
2: and
0: we moved in into the Brewster projects
3: oh gosh and I never
0: I never seen anything like this so, you know, <laughs> these huge buildings and all these people like people staying in these buildings that we, we lived at 529 Erskine Apartment 168.
2: Wow. How do you remember (laughs) remember that? (laughs) that.
0: I remember that because when you're 9, 10 years of age, 11 years of age, it stands out because I had never seen anything like this. Yeah. I mean, there were swimming pools, which we didn't have. There were places to exercise. Mm -hmm. And there were people that spoke to us in a nice manner, not like the people in Montgomery. As a young boy, seeing people... Who didn't speak to you who treated you poorly uh, who you you just didn't feel comfortable
3: Mm
0: -hmm. what i do recall is there were two catholic priests never forget this there was a catholic church that was not too far from my home and uh, these priests would walk down the street in their priestly garb and they would stop and say good morning good afternoon and talk to us. And my mother, she was uh, kind of dumbfounded to hear these white people talking to them, you know, like nobody else would. Wow. And so it, it had a profound impact on my life. And of course, when we got to Detroit, it, it was totally different.
2: Yeah, it was totally different. And yet, you were still in an area that was, in some ways, segregated, right? I mean,
0: oh, it was totally segregated. Yeah. yeah. Because I when I, I I started in Lincoln Elementary School which is still there now, yeah. you know. And uh, I was in, I think, the fifth grade, yes. And uh, I was just shocked that there were all these young kids who spoke differently than I did because I had a Southern accent, you know. And uh, all these teachers, black and white, at Lincoln Elementary School. And they were all so nice. And it was not that the teachers in Alabama didn't want you to learn. right? But the teachers were Different in that, I I remember Mr. Stasevich, a white man. It's really interesting because his son and I connected sometime later. I was at a function, and the man, his name was Stasevich. I said, do you have a dad who was a teacher in Lincoln? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I said, please tell him that I was one of his students. And he did. It was very nice. And his dad, he didn't remember me. But the fact is that this man stood out, you know. Yeah. And to to have someone uh, have a profound impact on my life.
2: Did, did you feel as a kid like the teachers thought you could be somebody in a way that teachers in Alabama didn't think that about you as a young Black child?
0: The teachers in Alabama, uh, from the first, third, and fourth grade, uh, I remember a teacher by the name of Miss Laura Thomas. Um, the, the kids were afraid of her because she was so tough.
3: Mm.
0: And her, her, to me, her portion in life, was to get us to think that we could do better. Yeah, To let us know that everything that we were seeing there wasn't the end of the world. And it was important for her to get us to study and to think about our lives, the future for our lives. Because think about her growing up in Alabama mm-hmm. and the other teachers who had no uh, future other than the big teachers, well, there's nothing wrong with that. But to see young black kids Graduate, and that was it. I mean, you're going to have a certain kind of job, and that was it. Yeah. But they always, she always taught us about, you know, this is not the end of your lives. You know, you have to learn to study, to, and most importantly, to read. Yeah. Read, read, read. Yeah.
2: yeah. Hmm. So, so you came to Detroit. Do you remember? Uh, that must have been close to the Hastings area. Do you remember what Hastings Street was like?
0: Oh yeah. An oh, area yeah. that's now lived, gone. Yeah. Yeah. I lived at 4125 San Agustin after we moved from. Uh, Rooster, you've been of about these addresses. I remember all these addresses. It's amazing. And we you know, to for for me to go and see Hastings Street, which was a black area, I mean there are whites who own businesses, but blacks own businesses in, in these areas. Yeah. And to see all these black people who are doing certain uh, different and more prosperous and progressive than the people in Alabama, and to, to let have them let you think. That things could get and be better for us.
3: Yeah.
0: And I would walk up and down the street. In fact, I w- when I was 10 years old, I got my first job. I was shining shoes at a barber shop oh my on Hastings Street. Wow. Reverend, Reverend Murray owned the barber shop. And I would shine shoes and clean up the, the hair off the, the, the floor when I was 10. I think I was paid something like. Four or five dollars a week. <laughs> but that was heavily. A lot for, for a 10 year
2: old, yeah. Oh, oh, At yeah, that time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: And what really stood out for me was these men always talking about life and the future. Mm. But they were not uh, stuck in the fact that there was segregation and all these things going on. But they would always say to me, they, listen, son, you know, things got to be better for you, you know. And they would stress also the importance of learning.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. And and interesting for me, too, is they would say, don't do or be like me. Hmm. (laughs) We want you to have a better life than me. And so this, not only was my dad saying this, but these other men uh, were saying this to me. And they would probably say this to all the other young black kids, but they really stressed this to me because They saw, obviously they saw something that was different. And so I remember uh, as I was shining shoes and I went home and I told my dad, he said, son, let me tell you something. (laughs) He said, you can do this at home. Uh, And I didn't think about this. He said, yeah. He said, there's a church across the street, which is New Bethlehem Baptist Church. Oh, wow. He said, a block and a half from here. Is Reverend Franklin's church, Aretha Franklin's dad, yep. New Bethel Baptist Church. He said, "Son, let me tell you something." He said, "These deacons come here on Saturday and Sunday, and they <laughs> they <laughs> want their shoes shined." <laughs> he says, "Boy, let me tell you." He said, "You can make some money doing that." Now, my dad was an entrepreneur. And I didn't know what the word meant. Yeah. So, this was just amazing for me. My dad, he sent me to a hardware store up on Hastings Street. He said, here's what I want you to buy. And he gave me a list. And I got this list of things, boards and things like that. And my dad and I built a shoe shine stand in front of my house at 4125 St. Antoine. Wow. And it was a two-seater, as I would say. <laughs> and, uh, but what, the catch here was my dad, he said, okay, I want you to go to the store and get this a paint store. Uh, and I, I came back with these two uh, buckets of paint. And we painted the shoe shine stand, and it was pink. Pink. And so yeah. And so I said, Dad, I said, you know, we can't, we can't have a pink shoe shine stand. He said, Son, let me tell you something. He said, People are going to come from miles around to see this boy with a pink shoe shine stand. <laughs> he said, Just wait. At this time in 1954, I was making twenty dollars a week shining shoes. Wow. And it, it, it's unheard of, you know. My dad was making forty dollars a week at the auto plant. But I was making $20 shining shoes, and these men, these uh, black men would come by, they said, and they would say things like, son, you know, we understand you shine a good pair of shoes. I said, yes, sir. And and black men at that time, the big shoe was Stacy Adams or Stetson's. Mm-hmm. And I would shine those shoes, and boy, they would love that. And they would give me a nice tip, a quarter or something. Some, the big tip were a half dollar. Wow. And so that's
2: <laughs> 1954,
0: 1955, I was doing that.
2: You must have been privy to a lot of grown-up conversations
0: in in that
2: setting. How did that influence you? Or do you remember any of those? Or any of the deacons or preachers that came by (laughs) that really stand out to you?
0: Well, what they would do is they would talk about their lives.
3: Yeah.
0: I remember this because thinking about this in terms of the way that life was at the time for Black people, in particular Black men, Mm -hmm. they would say to me, listen, we don't want... This life, uh, your life, to be like ours.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: We want you to grow and be uh, and do much better than uh, what what's happened with me and for other people in our lives. And they would say things like this. And I'm sorry, this phone is ringing. It's right okay. Would, <clears throat> they would say, "Listen, things are bad right now for us, colored people." They say they would say, "You know, there there are places that we can't go and, and even do here in Detroit." But at some point, it's going to change, and this is at the point Dr. King was speaking out yeah. after Rosa Parks had, had did what she did. So it was totally different, and they would. It was really interesting how they would continue to try and inspire. Yeah, and, and and to make my life better than theirs.
2: Did you have a sense of that as a as a young man, a young boy? Um, from Montgomery, like what had happened in Montgomery in 1955, 56 and sort of the emerging civil rights movement as a, as a, I don't know, an adolescent teenager. Oh yeah.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. See what was interesting for me is that certainly my father was more uh, in tune with what, what was going on than my mother. Mm-hmm. And my father would always talk to me about something I mentioned last week in terms of as a young Black man, colored man, you got to be mindful of what you do and what you say mm-hmm. because you could lose your life. And that was right after Emmett Till. Mm. And he would say, Listen, always make sure you know where you're at, always make sure you know what you're doing, but listen, always maintain your dignity.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And this as a young boy, 10 11 yeah. 12 of age that meant a lot. And at the same time that was happening. in the wintertime, time I would I got a job delivering coal mm. <laughs>
3: because
0: we had all these these uh, coals that burned uh, stoves that burned coal. And the man who owned the stove, the coal yard was a man by the name of Mr. Bunch. Mm. Ralph Bunch's relative. Wow. And I didn't know who Ralph Bunch was, but Mr. Bunch, I I was the only young boy working for him. And Mr. Bunch, he he, he was like Creole colored, you know, and he would talk to me about life. He said, listen here, son. (laughs) He said, the world is different in different places. He had traveled through Europe. He had traveled to the Far East. He had traveled to the South Pacific. He said, no, son, one day I want you to visit these places. He said, because there's so much. And the thing that really stood out for me was he, he started asking me questions about classical music.
3: Hmm.
0: I didn't know anything about classical music. And he would play this music in the courtyard. And I remember this one day. I said, Mr. Bunch, what is that? He said, son, that is Beethoven. <laughs> Who's Beethoven, you know? He said, you don't know who Beethoven is? I said, no, sir. He said, do you know who Strauss is? I said, no, sir. Unbelievably, Mr. Bunch closed down the coal yard, took me up to the uh, library and said, (laughs) listen, I want you to hear this. So back in those days, they had the big LPs and you would put the... uh, Headset on, you could listen to. um, I'm sorry, people are calling. (laughs) You could listen to the music. I listened to the Blue Danube. I went, wow. Then I listened to the tale of Viennese woods. And I went, my God, this is absolutely incredible. And then he said, now listen to this. And I heard the music and I said, Oh, that's a Lone Ranger's theme. Wow. <laughs> he said, no, 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 no. He said, this is much more than a Lone Ranger's theme. He said, this is in so many movies that you see. And I said, wow. And that piqued my interest. It's opened up my interest in all kinds of music, you know, because we had been listening to regular music. Yeah. That coupled with his talking to me about life. And then he told me about his relative, Ralph Bunch. Mm-hmm. The first African American to receive Nobel Peace Prize.
3: Yeah, I said,
0: "Wow!" And I, <laughs> I would talk to people about this; they thought it was nuts. You know, you're talking about classical music. We would talk to, listen to James Brown or Bill Doggins right. or something like that. <laughs> you know, but it, to me, it was an, a, 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 let's see, a window to the world. Mm-hmm. And so, in 1959, the family moved to 15817 Holborn. Uh, in Northwest Detroit near U of D. And of course, it was a nice home. And I went into the attic, and there are all these books. They were encyclopedias. And I remember that,
3: I said, wow,
0: but they were uh, written in the 1890s. Wow. And I read every one of them everyone, because of the insatiable desire to learn. Of course, it was outdated, what I learned, and then I compared that with what was happening uh, in, in the 1950s. That's incredible. Uh, so, oh, yeah, so this, this was part of my life.
2: It's wonderful <clears throat> to think about these older men in the community lifting you up and and giving you a window onto the world, giving you access to possibility and opportunity, and then, you know, because I know part of your story, it's heartbreaking to think of um, men like Rotation Slim, <laughs> who could only see you in a very narrow, uh, negative, small way. And yeah. um, I wonder if you could, if you don't mind, tell us about Rotation Slim and, and your experience with him as a teenager.
0: Oh, sure, sure. Uh, my, I had had no interaction with the Detroit police, None. In fact, I remember my friends saying to me, "They said you're just too nice. You know, you got to do something bad." Anyway, um, I was when I graduated from uh, Garfield Junior High School and was admitted to uh, Cash Tech High, which was one of the best schools in the country. In fact, at that time, they said it was the second best school in the country. Wow. I was very proud of that.
2: Yeah, it's a good <clears> school.
0: And so, excuse me. <clears throat> and so, back in 1957. The first day of school was a half day for high schoolers. And so I went to cast that first day. And then I decided that I was going to go back to Garfield and speak to my favorite teacher of all time, Mr. Raymond Hughes. Because he had had such a profound impact on my life in the two years I'd been at Garfield. So I went to the school, you know, probably one, one thirty or something. And he was so proud of the fact that I was there at Cash Tech. And as I started to leave the school, I'm walking out, and I get to the curb, and this police car pulls up, and it was known as the Big Four. Mm -hmm. Now, I had seen them before because so many young men in my neighborhood had been rousted or beaten up by the Big Four. We all knew Rotation Slim because he was uh, thought of to be the most vicious and vile person in the neighborhood. It's like every black person who grew up in my neighborhood, they knew rotation Slimbo or had some experience mm-hmm. with him. So as I'm starting to cross the street, three of these men jumped out of the car, very big, tall white men, and they grabbed me and threw me up against the car. I'm 14 years old. And they started swearing at me. And I said, "Sir, sir, sir," <laughs> you know, and the more I said "sir," and asked questions, the more they proceeded to beat me up. Mm. And they were good at what they did. They beat me, beat me from my neck to my waist. So you and can see it. Yeah, mm. yeah. And I said, "Sir, sir," and I mean the name calling, and the anger on this one man's face. That was rotation slim. I mean, just the anger. That you know that and the names. And of course, he called me up the the N word and so forth. And as they were doing this, I was looking behind them and I could see all the other black people there. Who and I'm wondering why nothing's happening, why they're not saying anything. But I realized they couldn't.
3: Right.
0: If they'd said something, something would have happened to them, and probably they would have gotten killed. Right. And so after they finished doing that, they told me to get my black ass out of there. I was crying and I ran home. Now my mother was at home, my dad was at work, I didn't tell them. Never told them at all until years later. At that time, if a black person had gone into the police station to make a complaint against white police officers, he or she probably would have been locked up or beaten. I said nothing. But that evening, I made myself a promise I was going to become a police officer, a Detroit police officer, and certainly not like those vile, profane, mean, brutal people. And uh, I remember keeping this to myself and not saying anything at all, but it it stayed in the back of my mind that I was going to do that. I mean, I wanted to do other things, but I wanted to become a police officer to make sure these kinds of things didn't happen to anybody else. Ironically, in 1965, I joined the Detroit Police Department. And just before the rebellion, uh, I was working uh, with a group. And uh, uh, we were driving down Woodward Avenue, me and this other officer. He is white. And he said, let's stop and get some coffee. I don't, still don't drink coffee. So I was going to get orange juice. So we walked into this restaurant. It was called Big Ben's,
3: mm.
0: right across from the Bond Cell Theater. And as we walked in, in uniform, this uh, officer said, oh, there's rotation slim. And I tell you, <laughs> um, it, it, that anger that I had at that time came to me that I wanted to kick his ass. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and, uh,
2: <clears throat> and now I, you're uh, in a much better position to do it.
0: Much better position. I was a black belt in karate. And I was much younger than this guy, but he's sitting in the rear of the restaurant in a booth. And I made a beeline to him. And I tell you, my intention at that time was to rip his head off because of what he had done to me.
3: Yeah. And
0: I stood there over him as he was drinking a cup of coffee. I said, rotation slam. And he looked up at me. He said, yes, officer, which was a far cry from 10 years earlier when he had called me all these names and beat me up, and it it, it grabbed me. I came back to the person that I was. I said, rotation Slim." I said, listen, you did something to me a number of years ago that changed my life. And I'm looking at him in his hand with a cup of coffee, shaking. He said, what did I do, officer? I said, well, really, it doesn't matter what you did, but I want to thank you because you had a profound impact on my life. What did I do, officer? I'm thinking to myself, he had kicked so many black people's asses, you know, (laughs) it didn't matter. He wouldn't remember me from anybody else. And I turned around and walked away. Wow. And when I tell that story to people, they say, well, I would have kicked his ass. Said, well, let me, and, I, and particularly young black people. Mm-hmm. I said, let's think about this now. It's 1967. I said, if I had beaten or killed this white police officer, no one would have known what he, he had done. I said, it would have been my word against his, and I would have been in jail right now. Yep. I said, but think of what I've been able to do since that time. And most young people understand that, you know. So that that was rotation slim in my interaction.
2: You know, I uh, in doing some of my research for my book, I kept encountering older black men, in particular, and, and women too, and, and they all mentioned rotation slim. Like yeah. Every one of a certain age that uh, black people of a certain age that I've encountered in Detroit, either had something to say about the big four. Yes. Or rotation slim. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to I, I, I kept wondering who was rotation slim. Like, There's a nickname. Who was he really? And I found an article in the Detroit <laughs> Free Press uh, from yes. when he retired
0: oh and Brian Flanagan called me (laughs) no no no. (laughs)
2: No. his name was Jack O'Kelly
0: Jack O'Kelly I I wasn't going to reveal it because I don't want to uh, have his family if there's some remnants of his family realize what an ass he was
3: Right,
2: (laughs) (laughs) but I'll tell his name his name was Jack O'Kelly and what, what struck me about this article and I looked at it again this morning and it was written in 1972 so it's still a reflection of the times but it's revealing in the disparity between how African-Americans saw Jack Kelly rotation slim and how white people saw him. So the headline was that he was one of the most savviest coppers in Detroit. And one of the first, you know, sentences in the paragraph about him or in the article about him said that, uh, you know, things would be a lot better if we had more cops like him. More
0: cops like him. Yes. Yes.
2: And, you know, it twisted my stomach because yeah. I know that even in 1972, of course, you're still dealing with that legacy of um, hatred and segregation and even Klan presence in the Detroit Police Department. Yes. But I can't <clears throat> help but think that there are people who would still say that today.
0: They, they still think that way. And um, some do. But thinking about this now, there was more than one. Rotation slip, right? There are a great number of black people who were beaten probably lost their lives and never investigated Yeah, think about 1967 when I was shot at by my fellow officers So I, mean, I could have been killed and though no, so it, it would have been they would have said a sniper killed me.
2: Yeah So so take us back to that. It's 1967 your two years on the Detroit police force um, You you joined in 1965 right? Yes. And you were what what precinct were you in? And
0: I was assigned to the 2nd precinct. Okay. But during the rebellion I was assigned to the 10th precinct because that's where most of the things were occurring. Right. And so um I lived at 3265 <laughs> West Boston and uh it was in the heart of the rebellion. And I had gone to work at the 2nd precinct. And that night, I got off, I think, about 1 or 2 in the morning. I was in my uniform. I had a uh, Mustang Convertible, 1965 Mustang Convertible, black over green. It was wonderful, I thought. (laughs) (laughs) My first car that I owned. Wow. And I left work and was driving home. And I remember... I came, uh, drove off the Lodge Freeway onto Chicago-Boston uh, exit, and I made a left turn on uh, Chicago. And again, I'm in uniform. I had my badge on. I had a two for the precinct and windows down. And this car with two officers pulled me over. And I said, police officer, get out of the car, they said. And of course, they started using the racial epithet. I stepped out of the car and I said, police officer, had my hands up. And every time I see these young people with their hands up, I think about that. Yeah. But people don't realize the impact these kinds of things have on you, mm-hmm. and certainly on other people. Anyway, so I'm standing next to my car. Thank God the door was open. And there are these two white officers. The older one had silver hair, brush cut. Uh, and the other one had dark hair. He was standing behind him. And they both had their guns up. And uh, the older one, he said, tonight you're going to die, nigga. Mm. And, I, and I'd heard this word before. And it was like time stood still, because I could see him pulling the trigger on that gun. And as I saw that, I dove back into my car. As I dove into my car, I grabbed the steering wheel with my left hand and pushed the accelerator with my right hand. And they started shooting at me. And I sped off. And... Thank God they didn't chase me yeah. because we got into a gunfight. And then what would have been? So I got back to my uh, apartment and I called my precinct and I said to the sergeant, I said, let me tell you what happened. And I explained that to them. And his words to me were, well, Ike, you know, we have some assholes out there. <laughs> I said, you're telling me you know right. what we have. Nothing was ever done. Nothing was ever done. And again, it just went on to show to me the disparity and the inequality. We lost, what, 43, 44 people during the rebellion. Yeah. And I think except for one, uh, they were all black.
2: Yeah. They were majority black. And, and, yeah. and in most cases, they were killed either by the National Guard or by— or- Police yeah, officers. Was, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. originally the story was that they were killed by snipers, but yeah, subsequent yeah. investigations, both by the free press and yeah. um, other people, showed that they were not. And yeah. and I mean, the most egregious case, of course, is the Algiers Motel incident, where yes. a group of officers from the 13th Precinct uh, raided the Algiers Motel, a, a black-owned and um, patronized hotel, and they found a group of young black teenagers. Um, hanging out with a couple of white prostitutes. Yes. And they decided to terrorize and murder them. Yes. And then they left and they pretended it never happened. And they uh, refused, you know, forgot to write a report, um, refused to write a report and then and then wrote a report after the fact that was false. And um, they were eventually brought up on charges. But uh, were never held responsible for the deaths of the three young men that they um, were responsible for that night. And and, and and you were not an eyewitness to it, literally, in the sense that you weren't at the Algiers Motel, but you were in the Detroit Police Department when yes. that happened. And I wonder if you could just shed a little bit of light on what that felt like being inside the police department when that was going on. Because in your book, you say it divided officers, Oh, yeah. um, Can you talk time, a little bit about
0: that? At the time of the Algiers Motel, we didn't know about it. And then towards the end of the rebellion, right. the word leaked out that something had happened, that these three young men had been killed by Detroit police. And so I remember talking to certain white officers about this, and they would say to me, well, you know, obviously they had to do it because... Obviously, they feared for their lives, and that's the catchphrase right. in law enforcement: we feared for our lives and safety. And I'm saying to myself, "My like, wait, come on, guys! You know, I mean, there are three guys." And then the more the word got out in terms of what had occurred, we got angrier. And the not every white officer believed the story. Yeah. Not every white officer believed that these uh, officers were innocent. Mm-hmm. But a great number of them uh, believe that, well, this is what happened, you know. And uh, what do you do when somebody has a gun or shoots at you? You know, obviously they were shooting at them, and of course we found that that was different. Right. And uh, it became a point for me, as the person who was beaten up by the police, who was shot at by the police, and shot at during the the riot rebellion, that there's a lot of wrong that's going on and when you're in a situation where you have racist people who are saying and doing things around and in front of you let me tell you my first night as a Turk police officer yeah. <laughs> I mean you, you don't believe these things happen but they did uh, here I am a young police officer had spent four years in the military the last year and a day in Vietnam uh, for my country. I signed up August second. Became a Detroit police officer in the academy. My first day at the second precinct, I was on the midnight shift. I did not know the the, the number of blacks on the Detroit Police Department. Yeah. So tiny. I yeah. So I walked into the station in uniform first night, and uh, uh, I said, I, "I'm Officer McKinnon. I you know, new. They just go upstairs. <laughs> that, that was it behind the desk. The guy's behind the desk. So I walked upstairs. And in the squad room, there was this huge room that had a pink corn table, a pool. Uh, 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 that's their table. And there's a place that you would have roll call. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so I walked in. There had to be 30 officers there. Everybody was white. And I walked in and everybody's, turns and looks at me. I saw this guy, a a police officer, that I had gone to high school with. And I said, Ed. He turned his head.
3: Mm.
0: Yeah. And I said, oh, Lord, here we go. You know. And so the sergeants and the lieutenant come up for roll call. And they would say roll call. And everybody would go into a line formation. And there were two lines. Of officers and they would call your name in your assignment and so I'm the last person in line I'm the new person I don't know what's going on <clears throat> and so see the, uh, they say two names Scout one. that's those two officers assigned to the second precinct first uh, uh, detail to one to two and then they get to Scout two seven. And they called this officer's name, here, sir, McKinnon, Scout uh, 27. I said, here, sir. And uh, <laughs> this officer, at that point, yells out in roll call, Jesus fucking Christ, I'm working with a nigger. And, of course, all the other officers, including the supervisor, started laughing. Mm. My first day of the first day, this is my introduction.
2: Your very first I day. Said,
0: I said nothing because I knew that I had to stay there and stop these kinds of things in, in addition to the rotation slims from doing this to other people. Other officers had told me that they had left because of these, later on, they told me they had left because these kind of things had happened to them. And so after roll call, uh, I went down to see who were the car I was working I see this officer that made this disparaging comment, Ends up. Uh, he's sitting in the car. I walked over and said, excuse me, am I working with you? He said, nothing. I said, excuse me, am I working with you? Nothing. He looked straight ahead. I then went back to the sergeant. I said, Serge, Sergeant Anderson was the surgeon. Excuse me, Serge. I said, am, who am I working with? He said, you're working with that guy. He called his name, which I will call at this point. I said, oh, okay. So I went over to the car, got in. He never said a word to me for eight hours.
2: Eight hours. Eight
0: eight hours. And at 530, I remember there's a restaurant called High Grades on Michigan Avenue. He's driving. He pulls over to the curb, turns the engine off, walks into the restaurant, sits behind the counter and and ordered breakfast for himself. I got out, left me in the car. I got ran to the restroom because I didn't want him to leave me because that could have been the next thing. Yeah. And I got in the car, never said a word. And that was the pattern for some of the white officers. Now there are other officers who I remember Andy Parker, older white officer, my second or third date, uh, they assigned me with him. He says, Hey, what's your name? I says, like he, oh, nice to meet you, <laughs> which is a far cry from this guy. Another officer, Frank Mitchell, who to this day is still my friend. Mm. He said, hey, listen, he says, uh, I'm this, he's, <laughs> Frank Mitchell, and he said this to me. He said, listen, there are some very bad and bigoted guys on this department. Don't let them force you to leave this job. I said thank you you know you have really made a difference for me and he and I became friends and to this day are still friends and that's what 50 some years wow. from, from, uh, from that time but that was my first day as a Detroit police officer and so I would say to <laughs> other officers <clears throat> black officers if they are treating us this way what are they doing to the regular people on the street right and of course, sixty-seven, and and what happened to me before was indicative of what they had done and how they treated people. Yeah, so,
2: yeah. You were able to have an inside seat in that world for a long, long time, and yes, after the rebellion, of course, uh, you were an, maybe you were a sergeant by then uh, when Dr. King was murdered in nineteen sixty-eight. Yes. And I was still a
0: civil police officer. Yes.
2: Okay and and you you know, you were in the department then was, was that a similar feeling that that is happening now, or I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, what we're seeing happening right now across the country are these uprisings, and it to me, it has the feel of nineteen sixty eight Chicago yeah,
1: um, yeah.
2: but it also has the feeling of sixty seven Detroit but not entirely, and I'm just wondering, you know, having lived through both of those moments of extremely high tension and um, uprisings, what you think?
0: When, when Dr. King was killed, it's, it's ironic that I was on the afternoon shift at the time. We heard this. I, I was devastated. I think most people were devastated. Yeah. Most black people were devastated at the time, and we just couldn't understand, you know, that here's this man who had done so much for the world. Uh, who had lost his life. Now, of course, we had gone through uh, President Kennedy being killed and then we'd gone through Malcolm X being killed, but it was different. Here's a man of peace. Mm -hmm. And he was killed. I remember I was working with this officer who brought it back to the reality for me. He said, you know, he said, probably Martin Luther King had himself assassinated. Mm. And I said, "What?" He said, "He probably had himself assassinated so he could have the colored people riot again." And one of the few times that I exploded, yeah, you know, and I swore at this guy. I said, "Are you out of your fucking mind?" You know, the things, said, "Where are you getting this from?" He said, "Well, that's the word." You know, I said, "Wait a minute, <laughs> said, please, let's not even talk about this." But the people in black people in general i think had a sense of hopelessness mm-hmm. because this was our leader this is the person who had brought hope for so many years to the community and um it was something that uh, tore us apart
3: mm-hmm. you know
0: and uh, i i still to this day regret the fact that i didn't go to his funeral
3: mm. you know, i
0: wish that i had you know but of course, it was different because at that time we weren't on alert, and police officers couldn't couldn't leave. But then there there was a, a sense of hopelessness, I think, within the, the African American community that here's this great person who lost his life, and what's going to happen now? The world, the United States, is going to going to, come, uh, going to blow apart because of this.
2: Yeah, and it did. There were riots, and uprisings, yeah, yeah. in hundreds of cities across the country at that time. Yeah.
0: But there was nothing like it is today in terms of all these young people yeah. coming together and saying, you know, we matter. Mm-hmm. We matter. And we don't want any more of this stuff. Yeah. And I think this is the, becomes the focal point because what they're doing is trying to take away the reality of what happened to Floyd and say, well, those, those radical left and right and all this kind of stuff, you know. But the reality is that what's the underlying cause? Right. The underlying cause is all these years of brutality of killing people. And if we, we go back to um, uh, Tulsa, mm-hmm. the number of people that were killed there, and we go on and on and on. I remember <clears throat> in 1958, they found this black man in the river in Georgia,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and he had was wrapped up in barbed wire. I think he had um, uh, these cinder blocks uh, tied to his legs, and he was shot in the head. And they were talking to the sheriff, and the sheriff, he said, worst case of suicide I ever saw. Oh, the, 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 the mentality. Right. Your life meant nothing. And uh, you know, people are tired. Yeah, and, extremely tired. Extremely tired, and and they're angry, and they're
2: and when angry. When you see
0: uh, white and black, I got a a message uh, this morning from a former student of mine who lives in Germany. Another message from a former student of mine who lives in Minneapolis. who is are saying the same thing, you know. So they, they, all these things that I've experienced and others, I'm just one part of this big puzzle.
3: Yeah,
0: that experienced it and was able to. Uh, to write it and talk about it and other people they're showing their anger mm-hmm. well i'm angry too but i mm-hmm. I, I display it in a different way
2: right well and you you really work to i think make change from within within the system so when we talk about police violence and the systemic problems that enable it i feel like you're one of those people who have been there uh, working on the inside to make change and so yes um as a patrolman you worked to get other officers not to behave in ways that were violent and brutal towards citizens. And yeah. and a lot of officers <clears throat> paid a price for speaking out against other policemen that way. Is that right?
0: There's no question that, in particular, black officers and white officers were ostracized right. or fired because they did. Think about this. You're riding with an officer who, okay, this one of the most egregious ones for me. I'm riding with this young white officer and it's four o'clock in the morning and there's this older black man who's walking to work with his lunch pail.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I I knew this and had seen this with my dad.
2: I was going to say, yeah. You know? mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and so this officer pulls up next to this man, this old black man, and he says, hey boy, come here. Oh, God, oh, Lord, don't don't do this, please. And he he says to him, he says, God damn it, what are you doing on the street, boy? And the old black man, who was the epitome of my father, he says, sir, I'm going to work. And this officer, was probably in his late 20s, he says, God damn it, you got to get your black ass off the street. And at this point, (laughs) I said to this officer, look. You will call this man sir or mister. You understand that? And he looked at me, and I said, I'm going to tell you something. If you continue to talk this way, I'm going to kick your ass <laughs> right here. And this old man, and he had never seen anything like this yeah. before. He go, oh, God, God, you know what he thought? <laughs> I know he was just young. And so the white officer said, you don't talk that way to me. I said, you don't talk that way to this man. You understand that this is not a boy. This is a man. Right. I said, sir, where are you going? He stop going to work. I said, fine, you go by. Go on about your way. And so this officer, he said, I'm going and tell the supervisor. I said, fine, you tell the supervisor. So we went into the precinct, and he has his meeting with the supervisor. Supervisor came out to me. He says, Ike, what happened? I said, sir, this is what happened. They said, okay, they sent the white officer home. Hmm. I mean, yeah. this is unheard of. Yeah. Unheard of. You know, but it was just incredible to me to see these kinds of things continue to happen over and over again. And again, so if it happened in front of me, right, what's happening to others? And I mean, you just can't imagine the name-calling that was there every day. And Black women were commonly locked up. White women were locked, not locked up.
3: Right. If a
0: white woman was locked up, the, the officers behind the desk would let her go. In particular, black guys locked her up. But th- this is the in- inequality that we saw. And you spoke out. or well, you had to speak out. Other officers were not like me who didn't speak out. And it was important for me. Because you have to, as uh, my father talked to me about maintaining your own dignity. Right. My dignity was telling him, "Listen, if you do something in front of me, I'm not going to let it go. I'm going to stop you." And so, it reached a, a boiling point when I became a young sergeant. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was a sergeant at the 10th Precinct, and ironically, I had a corporal, so a driver, and my driver that night was a young white guy. And we're on the midnight shift and he's driving and we hear a chase police chase that starts in the second precinct that's coming north towards the 10th precinct. And so I said to the the driver, I said, let's head up this way because I know that at the end of every chase, somebody's going to get their ass kicked. And that's the way it is. Unless you were like me, who didn't believe in that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the closer it got, the more I realized that something's going to happen. And so we are a block away, and we hear, they're out of the car. And so I told us I turned here, that's where they're at. And this is what I saw. I saw four or five Detroit police cars in a circle with their lights on, And there's these three young black boys on the ground being beaten and kicked. Mm. Hit with sticks, being kicked and so forth. And I, I could not believe what I was seeing. So I jumped out of my car and I yelled, stop it, damn it, stop it. And one of the officers yelled, supervisor, supervisor, get out of here. And at that point, I grabbed one of the officers and we tussled and as we tussled i grabbed his badge off he ran and got in his car and so i grabbed another officer and we tussled i grabbed his gun and the third officer i grabbed him and i said you're not getting away from me and uh the only black officer who was there saying was edward stevenson we had graduated from the police academy together i said put put this guy in your car and take him into the precinct. And he did. And I started heading back into the precinct to deal with this. The officer who was driving me, (laughs) I said, so what did you see? Mm. Here's what he saw. He said, well, you know, the lights got in my eyes. I couldn't see anything. I said, (laughs) "Wow. (laughs) you know, I said, you are... a cowardly asshole. I said, "You better quit this job, because I want to make sure that you are fired." Yeah. He did quit. He wow. did quit. So I get back into the station. Now think about this. I mean, you, you had to have guts, <laughs> you, you, or you'd be a little crazy. Maybe I was a little bit of both, but I experienced <laughs> had experienced too much. And we had the three boys, <laughs> and. I get into the station, and my boss was an inspector. Someone from the precinct had called him and said, "Ike, it's crazy. He's locked up this police officer." My boss, he said, "Ike, what the hell's happening out there?" He said, "God damn it, you're going to make these officers lose their job." I said, "Sir, God damn it, Ike," he said. You know these officers; they're only doing their job. I said, "Sir, do you want to hear what I had to say?" God damn it! I he said, and he hung up. Mm. At that point, a lieutenant from the precinct where these officers were, he says, uh, "Sir," he said, "What happened?" I said, "Well, they were kicking these young men's ass." He said, "Well, you know they're only doing their job." I said, "Their job was not to beat right. them up." Right. Right. He hung up on me. (laughs) And so at that point, all of the officers and other officers from different precincts showed up at the 10th precinct to scare me, which wasn't going to happen. Right. Mm. Black and white officers, black and white. And so I'm in my in the room and I'm doing my report. I'll never forget the sergeant said to me, he says, Ike, listen, you're doing the right thing. Stand up, stand tall. That's mm-hmm. where I get the name of the book oh, from. Wow. You know? And I said, thank you. He said, don't let them scare you. And so I'm typing my report. And I asked the young man, I said, the, they're all brothers, twins and brothers. Uh, An older one, they're 14 and 15 years of age. They had sold the car.
3: Yeah.
0: I said, So who do you guys do? We we love that mother. I said, What's her number? And they gave me the number. And I called. And her response was so vile and profane against her sons that she didn't care how her sons got their asses beat. Wow. In fact, she said they need to get their asses whipped. And I said, ma'am, let me explain to you. I'm the surgeon, and this is what happened to your son. And she's, I don't give a fuck, you know. Listen, he's locked their asses up. I said, No, ma'am. I'm gonna bring them home to you. God damn it, I don't want their little black asses home. So I mean th- thinking about this in terms of how bad this was. Yeah. I had no complainant. <laughs> I had the mother wasn't going to complain. And so now I'm out there making a this, yeah. this, this move and nothing. And so I took them home. And she says, get the fuck away from my house. <laughs> to me, you know. So I got back to the precinct and these officers are still there. I had nothing. So I said to the officers, look. I'm going to let you go this time because I realize that you're not all bad. I'm saving face
3: mm-hmm.
0: because there's no complaint, mm-hmm. you know? And of course they thought I was the greatest guy in the world. I was the greatest guy, you know, <laughs> but the reality is these officers should have gone to jail. Right. And nobody's going to prosecute.
2: And the pressure that you, that was put on you by your superiors, to to not bring any kind of punishment down on those officers or their their fear for them instead of the citizens that they're sworn to protect is was that was that just the status quo
0: it was status quo police officers didn't go to jail
2: yeah
0: police officers did not go to jail i mean they might have quit the job they might have been fired but they didn't go to jail Mm -mm. these officers should have gone to jail yeah in fact one of the officers was was a, a police officer that I graduated from the academy with. Wow. Oh yeah, he's. Well, we are friends, you know, and he apologized later. He said, "Man, I, it just went out of my hand. Okay. You know. <laughs> and
2: I could see, you know, I could see how t- tensions would be high, and feelings and emotions would be high, and and I I can empathize, I guess, what I'm trying to say with with police in those situations. But how do you change that culture where, I mean, of course, a lot of it has to do with training and you've always seems to be able to keep your cool in these situations. How do you, how do you train people differently so that they react in a responsible and protective way instead of a violent way?
0: Well, so much depends upon the individual. So that's, that's how you start. It's the kind of person that you bring into that job of law enforcement because Police officers have to understand they're not there to chastise. Mm-hmm. They're not there to beat. They're there to serve and protect. And so, of course, they know what to say. Oh, I'm, I'm there to serve and protect my community. but So you have to have regular evaluations of officers, to see what they're doing, what they're thinking, and understand that there are those who are going to slip through the system, but right. not a great majority of the people in the police department. And they're those who you you want to get them to know that you, you just aren't going to take this. So it starts at the top and goes down. But this regular evaluation training is a part of it. For instance, <laughs> I, I did diversity training at a great number of FBI. Mm-hmm. I was doing the diversity training up at this uh, suburban community. And we were talking uh, about certainly not beating people and certainly uh, you as a law enforcement officer, what your duties are. <clears throat> and I said to them, there had to be probably 50 officers in the room, male and female, different uh, races. I said, for instance, there might be some gate officers in, in your department. I'll never forget this very large officer. He said, what? There ain't no fucking fags on my department. (laughs) I said, well, you never can tell. I said, uh, there might be a a, a large proportion or a small proportion. He said, Chief, there ain't no fags on my department. I said, well, you never can tell. officer who was sitting next to him, she said, well, I'm gay. This is at this diversity class. She said, I'm gay. And he says, this is what he said. He says, you can't be no fucking fag. I want to fuck you. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm telling you, I'm in the classroom. <laughs> in the classroom.
2: You had your and, work cut out for you.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, this is what you're dealing with. And so the kind of people to bring into this job of law enforcement they have to be people who are international and they have to be able to understand what's going on in the world. Right. And that there are different kinds of people, as my father used to say, but they don't. Right. They have been raised a certain way and that's it. Yeah. And it's the the world is black and white.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You're either right or you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And this is what we deal with. And so <clears throat> training is fine. But having the kind of people who really want to serve and protect, regardless of that race,
2: right? Is this part of the reason why? And I should tell the audience in case they well, we'll introduce you at the beginning. But you became chief of police of the city (laughs) of Detroit in 1993, uh, which is just amazing. And I wish I lived here then. (laughs) Um, But but is that part of the reason why when you were chief, it was important for you to? promote uh, people who had uh, bachelor's degrees or undergraduate degrees and higher degrees in college?
0: There's no question. There's no question. Because what I saw is that people who had a higher quality of education also had a higher quality of understanding Mm -hmm. of people. And unfortunately, the history of law enforcement work is that you had to be big and strong. Mm-hmm. And tough, and what they wanted was people not necessarily understand what was going on in the world. It's like being in the military, you know, you you go into war and you kill people. Well, we don't kill people. We're not supposed to. Right. We're supposed to understand the the climate of the people that you're dealing with, and that's why we have to be really mindful of who we bring into this. Law enforcement field. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think at the time that uh, I um, became came on the, the force, probably none of the people had uh, higher degrees of education, and so many of them had brought other people on who were high school or or less than that. You know, right. a, a GED. Not that there's wrong with that, right? But I think you have to be exposed to the the. the the complete surroundings around you. So that that's what I said, uh, that you, you had to. It was important for me to see what the quality of the education. So I think that all the people that I had in the higher extreme hiring were either uh, master's degrees or JDs.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And it became important for me. To, if you became an executive, you had at least a bachelor's degree and probably higher. Yeah. And I was not going to promote you unless you had that.
2: Now, had you already earned your Ph.D. by the time you were chief?
0: Yes, yes, in 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 1981.
2: Okay, so did you – I know that you went to college, uh, and then you got a master's and and then a Ph.D. from Michigan State. Did you do that throughout your – like you were a full-time student and a full-time police officer during those years?
0: Yes, yes, yeah. And people were shocked that here's this cop (laughs) going uh, to school Uh, And doing this, and it it became more of a, not a check, but a a ride for me after 67 because I saw these stupid people out in the street and what they were saying about people. Then I saw others who were great police officers who had seen the world and who had a great knowledge of education, I thought, you know. And once you, to me, you became uh, educated to the world you understood things better.
2: Yeah. And you've, so you've been the chief of police. Uh, when, (laughs) When you became chief, I mean, just thinking back to how you became a police officer, that horrible and brutal encounter with rotation slim, all the way to the point where you're in charge of the entire system. How did you tackle reform in the Detroit police department?
0: Well, I, I knew that the history had not been great. And in fact, the previous chief, Chief Hardy, had gone to jail. Mm-hmm. But no one, to me, had gone out and tried to truly empathize and be an active part of the community. So mine was to get the community to trust, to let them know that there's someone who really cares for you and thinks about you. Mm-hmm. And I let them know that. I sent out a, uh, a uh, uh, number one, a video in which I addressed all the officers in the department. Number two, I addressed the people of the city of Detroit. I said, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm one of you. I grew up in this city. This is what I experienced. And I'm not going to let this happen to you. And people started to understand that it's ironic that 25 years later, People are still saying thank you,
3: yeah. you know,
0: for, for that, and uh, that was important for me to. Go, I mean, I went every place in the city. I mean, churches and schools, and and it was so important to go out and talk to schools because young people, <clears throat> um, they see you, yeah, and they understand that, you know, but the if you're genuine and, mm-hmm. and if you have a, a heart,
2: right, and that's
0: it, That was a show to them.
2: Was it hard to change the inner structure of the police department in terms of like just down to basic behaviors and assumptions of patrolmen?
0: Well, again, it starts at the top. And yeah. I remember this, this one person, one police officer saying to me, chief, he said, you know, you, you have some good ideas. He said, But you ain't going to be here but for four years.
3: Hmm.
0: <laughs> he said the most is probably five or six. He was right in terms of that. I said to him, I said, look, you're going to conform conform during those four years or so. I'm going to fire your ass (laughs) (laughs) because you're going to do what's right. Right. I said, let's think about this. You're here to serve and protect. And And I continue to say this. The law enforcement code of ethics. The first paragraph basically states it. As a law enforcement officer, my fundamental duty is to serve the community. To safeguard lives and property, protect the innocent against deception, the weak against oppression or intimidation, and respect the constitutional rights of all to liberty, equality, and justice. I said, that's the basic foundation for law enforcement. Right. Once we get away from that, we're not we're not law enforcement officers, we're rogue people. Right. And that's what I try and live by. And I said, that's what you as law enforcement officers should live by. Look, I said somebody can piss you off. I said, let me give you an example of something. I said, and all the time I was a police officer, certainly I got into fights, but I would always say to the guys who wanted to fight me, I said, listen, chances are that we get into this fight, I'm going to kick your ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, and that's just right. I said, I'm black belt in karate, I've been good in what I've done. I said, chances are we get into a fight, I'm going to kick your ass. I said, no, let's not do this. Because not only am I going to kick your ass, but you're going to go to jail. Right. <laughs> and the ultimate threat I would give to them is that if you start kicking my ass, these other officers behind me, they're going to kick your ass. <laughs> you know, I said, and they're going to do a better job than I would do. Only one guy took me up on it. Mm-hmm. And all the time I was a police officer. You know? I said, now that's a smart guy. It's not worth it. And so they would laugh. They would say, man, you know, you're different. I said, yes, I'm different because I don't want to kick your ass, you know. Right, right. And and I'm not going to do it with a stake, you know. I'm going to do it with what I have here. And again, there are so many guys who I came in contact with throughout the years, especially when I became chief. They wrote me letters saying thank you for the way that you treated me.
3: Yeah.
0: I humanized them. Right. And, And that becomes part of the problem that we have and have had for years, a dehumanization of black people, in right. particular, black men. You know?
2: Yeah. If you, you know, I'm, I know you're watching everything that's happening around the country with very unique eyes, you know, with this <laughs> yeah. history. If if you were in charge of all the police departments in the country right now, what would you do? Like, what, what, what can they do right now? What should well, let they let me, be doing?
0: Well, it's interesting you say that because when I was deputy mayor, I was invited along with police chiefs and deputy mayors and mayors from around the country. We were at the White House. And they were talking about the job of law enforcement. But none of them talked about empathy. Mm. None of them talked about training as such as making sure that you had the right people on on the force. I told them the story of my being beaten up when I was 14, I told him the story of being shot at by my fellow officers. I said, look, in the United States of America, we have over 700,000 law enforcement officers in this country. There's 330 million people in this country. Mm -hmm. Please understand this, I said, we're not going to change all those people. We have to change. We have to take uh, take the impetus to make a difference with the kind of people that we bring on our jobs to make sure that They are are not rogue police officers who will do these kinds of acts. Nobody said anything. Not a word. Nobody said anything. Wow. And it bothered me that all these police chiefs, all these mayors, deputy mayors from around the country, nobody said anything. Now, what, what I would do is exactly what I've said before, making sure that we are mindful of the kind of people we bring on the job. Number two, I would make sure that we, certainly the training, but making certain that those people who are law enforcement officers are regularly monitored and checked, not just by their fellow officers, because those officers could have been the same ones that were rogue officers before right. who got into a higher rank. And those are the primary uh, areas I would look at, yeah. because we have to make sure that we don't lose any more people. We know that yeah. supervisors lie, other officers lie, but how do we change that? We don't want someone to say that's the worst case of suicide I ever saw.
3: Right. We
0: don't want someone to say, "Well, Rodney King kept getting up. Right. You know, he was resisting." You know, I mean, these are things that people have seen for years right. and years, or like the young men or the, the officer I was in the car with. Mm-hmm who made that comment to how do you talk to people? How do you talk to people? It's very simple. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Do you see them as fellow <clears throat> human beings or do you see them as things?
0: Yeah. That, yeah, you, yeah, you, you, yeah. that you
2: control and manipulate and brutalize.
0: Yeah. So let me tell you my last story I'm going to tell you. Yeah. <clears throat> there was an area in the second precinct that was undercover called Little Mississippi. Mm. And it was a two buildings that all white people lived and the white people who had moved up from the south. <clears throat> and um, my partner and I at the time uh, were black. We were the only black car at the second precinct. And there's a dispatch call to that location. They never sent black officers to that area because of you know, who they were. Right, and so radio says or dispatcher says two seven scout two seven. Uh, They gives give us the address. (laughs) There is a fight uh, in front of the building. I said radio, this is scout two seven. You know who we are. (laughs) And the dispatcher says two seven. I know who you are, but you're all we have. And so, Jess my partner and I, we drove to that area. As we get in front of the building, 3,700 Lincoln was the building. Mm. There are these people out front fighting. White people fighting. I mean, they're really going at it. So <laughs> as we stepped out of the car, they stopped fighting and here's what they said. No, 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 no. We don't want the nigger cops, we want the real police. And so now, in in another world, I might have gotten upset and wanted to whoop their behind. Yeah. So I said to them, I said, You want the white police? Yes, we want the white police. I said, Okay, now listen. Do you promise to stop fighting if we leave? <laughs> they said, yes, we don't want no more nigger cops here. We want to fight police. We won't fight. We promise we won't fight. I said, okay, I want you to hug each other. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so it, it, it's unbelievable. It's crazy. You know? And they started hugging each other. And they stopped fighting.
2: United in their racism.
0: Absolutely. And so <laughs> I got on the radio. The radio. This is Scout 270. We have resolved the problem. They promise not to fight anymore as long as we don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, the dispatcher started laughing. He says, I understand, Scout 27. I said, Thank you, radio. Mm. Jess, my partner, and I, we rolled away and we laughed. We said, You know, there's a purpose to some of this stuff. Understanding where the racism is, where it isn't. It's certainly on the police department. It's certainly in this location. Mm -hmm. But think about this. If we had gone out and beat these people or locked them up, what was going to happen to them? Right. Chances are we would have had a complaint against us. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And so the end of the story, (laughs) the end of the story is I was in that area on another location with a white officer. And... We had stopped into this um, record shop to get some, uh, I'm in orange juice and he, he was getting coffee. And he said, a man just walked past you with a rifle. I said, come on, he's he just walked past with a rifle. And we stepped out and I didn't see the man's right. Right next to the building was an alley. <laughs> and uh, I got to the alley and there's this guy walking down the alley with his rifle. I says, hey, stop, turn around, he shot at me.
2: Oh my God.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on the radio, that's radio. This is, um, so we are. I says, the yeah, guy just um, shot at me. He ran into 3700 Lincoln, hmm. which is that same address.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and so see, uh, uh, we have uh, a car that's on the way, which was the Big Four, another oh, okay. Big Four, not rotation slim, but another So we get there and. <laughs> It's, 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 it's tragic, it's funny. Anyway, we get there, and the crew, all white officers, except for me.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And as we get ready to walk into the building, <laughs> this guy up on the second floor says, he says, officer, you know, well, it's okay for you to come, but we don't want no digger cops in here. All right? So <laughs> this is this is my life. And so this officer, who was a crew chief, he said, What did you say? He said, I, We said, we don't want no nigger cops in here. <laughs> so they grabbed him and commenced to beat that living crap <laughs> out of him. <laughs> and he said, Where is the guy who shot at uh, our officers? And he said, He's on the second floor. <laughs> so as we get to the second floor, we see the guy and they arrested him. All these wow. Southern whites that are there, <clears throat> and they, they are saying, he shot at what, the police officers? Yes. And he shot at Officer Ike there. Well, damn it, he shouldn't have shot at no Detroit police officer. <laughs> and so the crew chief, he says to me, he said, Ike, he said, this is your arrest. You lock him up. This guy says, ain't no nigger gonna lock me up. <laughs> And the officer commenced to beat the living crap out of him, <laughs> so, You know? Wow. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Oh, he, right in front of him, in front of everybody else. And so, the people yelling, they start yelling, "You should not shot that, that naked cop." <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm, I'm telling oh you. Oh my god. This this is my life anyway. So, um, I have the guy handcuffed, and I'm taking him down the steps. And he says, God damn it, ain't no nigger gonna take me to jail. And he starts twisting, and I let him go, and he falls down the steps. Now, sometimes I subconsciously wonder if I would let him go, you know.
2: Right. Well, anyway,
0: so, <laughs> I mean, he gets to the bottom of the steps, and his head's busted. Uh oh. And he woke up and he goes, Sir, I'm sorry. I'm sorry <laughs> I called you a nigger. <laughs> I'm sorry I called you a nigger. I won't call you no nigger no more. Oh my god. And I'm saying to myself, God, you know, thank you for giving me these experiences so that I can laugh at it. I mean people don't believe this or won't believe. This is the reality of the life that so many of us have faced. Yeah. And we have to get through that to have a better not only police department but a city, but a better world. Right. Because we can't let every impediment like an asshole who's saying and doing those kinds of things uh, dictate our lives
2: right but there does come a time and I think we're seeing it now where people yeah. can't take it anymore they can't yeah. they can't take the dehumanization and yeah. Yeah. the pain and the trauma and I can imagine watching this and having all of those experiences has been very difficult
0: it's been extremely difficult yeah when I saw the officer with his knee on the man's neck it, I mean it really really bothered me because 50 years ago that could have been me right it could have been me 20 years ago
3: yeah
0: or it could be me now yeah and that bothers me because it hasn't changed that much
3: yeah
0: has the quality and the intellect of those people who are involved in law enforcement really changed has it gotten better and that that truly bothers me with what we have right now
3: yeah
2: I hope that it's the beginning of a better world and a better system. Uh, that's it, all I can hope for right now. I, I well, think we see people wanting to destroy the world that we have. And yeah. there's some things that need to be destroyed.
0: There's some things, that's right. And it's so racism, one, white supremacy. Racism, those, old, yeah. those old attitudes, you know? Yeah. And the number of young white people who are saying to me, you know, we have white privilege. You know, you don't. And white supremacy is part of that. Yeah. But we have to speak out against white supremacy, white privilege. And those so many of those young people have said this, who have spoken to the media,
3: yeah.
2: In the
0: last few days or so.
2: Yeah. And that's a start. That's a good thing. Yeah. That's absolutely. a change. That's a that's a difference from the past, which is hopeful.
0: Yes, yes.
2: Well, there's so many things we could still talk about. (laughs) We didn't even touch on your decades-long career as a professor, um, but we'll have to do that again. And I know that we've been talking for a long time, and you have other things to do. And um, Is there any other things you wanted to mention to our audience before we go?
0: I've had a great life. In spite of those things, that doesn't dictate my life. I mean, I I was fortunate enough to travel a lot, to have a great wife and great family, to have some great friends. And you're one of those people. Thank you. But so what I try and do is say, here's what I can do to help people to make a difference. And that's what I will continue to do. In two weeks, I turned 77 and I'm not gonna change. I'll keep working to try and make a difference with that, with everybody. Look, I've listened to people throughout my life, and their people had a profound impact. My dad, as a, when I was a young boy, he said this. He said, Son, he said, there are good people and bad people in every group and every race in this country. He said, Remember that. He said, But I don't want you to be one of those bad people. And I hope that I wasn't one of those bad people, that I tried to do everything I could to make a difference. And that's why those senior citizens that I spoke with. That's why I take every effort, every chance I get to talk to young people about life. Yeah. Because they can be better. They can do better. They don't have to uh, be subjected to the kinds of things that I was subjected to or the people before me. Uh, it's important for me to share that. and really the education, being a professor at university, meant so much to me and young people. Ironically, those young people, both black and white, they wanted to know about those experiences. And this is what I still try and do.
2: Yeah. Well, you're an inspiration to me. And I wish you a very happy birthday in two weeks. <laughs> thank, I you, hope, thank you. I hope that we're able to celebrate many more as friends. And, um, and I thank you for your time today and for everything that you've done to make a change in our world
0: thank you and thank you for what you're doing and done thanks thanks have a great day
2: thank you too okay Okay. thank you so much that was really wonderful and uh i i really could talk to you all day i mean (laughs) i mean there are all these things that i had listed on here to ask you about that we didn't even touch on but we could only talk for so long and i know know, you have other things
0: and I'm a talker, so we get to do this. Though, oh, me so. too.
2: I know, and I, I, you know, it's not often that you get to talk, you know, really talk with people about the life that they've lived and the lessons yeah. that they've learned from that. And um, you're you're a treasure, and I'm I'm just so grateful for that. I get to know you. So
0: thank you, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. We we've got to write something yeah <laughs> Okay, don't do that to me. <laughs> oh God, oh Lord. thank you. I know thank it's you just... so much. Okay yeah. I, know. <laughs> I know I know I know this is what we we have all gone through. Yeah. And I'm just one of those stories. I know. You know, when my sons say to me, Dad, thank you for telling me about being careful. Thank you for the things that you have said to me about life, and then the other people say the same thing, it means a lot, you know. Yeah,
3: I'm certainly,
0: i certainly I might maintain some of the anger, but uh, <clears throat> I show it a different way, yeah, because mine is to jump over the hurdle,
3: right?
2: And
0: not go through it, <laughs> so but that's anyway, su- that's
2: else. that's a superpower, you know. Yeah. That's that's a superpower because a lot of people can't, um, can't transform that anger into something positive.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, you have a, a jujitsu power <laughs> in that way, which I respect. So anyway, thank, thank you for your time. Okay. Thank you to Pat for sharing you this morning and, and, and we'll, we'll talk soon.
0: Okay. All right. Take okay. Care now. okay. Thanks, bye.
1: Hey guys, this is Adam. Thanks again for listening. If you liked this episode, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast and leave a review. Every positive review helps. Also, remember to subscribe to the podcast so you automatically get episodes downloaded to your podcast library. Please send any questions or feedback to the email conversations at roshreview.com. If there's someone you have in mind who you'd like for me to have a conversation with, please let me know. Don't forget to check out the Roche blog at roshreviewcom backslash blog for more excellent content. And if you are a student, a PA, nurse practitioner, or doctor who is in a training program or residency or has an upcoming exam, take a look at roshreview.com and sign up for a free trial. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you at the next episode. So long.